Hello, and welcome to episode 112 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and joining me for this episode is my good friend and oftentimes co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Uh, Carl and I today are talking about the latest entry in my Tennis 128 series, Rosie Casals. Uh, we're also talking about the book A Long Way, Baby, um, by Grace Lichtenstein from 1974, which I really enjoyed. I, I'm, we'll find out soon if Carl agreed with me. But that the book isn't entirely about Rosie Casals, but it has a lot about her. She shows up on the cover. Um, since I enjoyed the book and since we wanted to talk about Rosie, it seemed like a, a good joint episode to kind of bring back the book club a little bit, uh, but also talk about one of these important all-time great figures who I'm writing about as part of the Tennis 128 series. So, Carl, let's get started with the basics. I've already told you that I, I loved this book. Um, what do you think, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much did you enjoy Grace Lichtenstein's A Long Way Baby? Probably 8, 8.5. Eight 8.5, and eight and okay. Um, this book is covering the 1973 women's tennis season, which the major highlight of that is the Battle of the Sexes match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. But also there's a lot of other details about the week-in, week-out stuff. And one thing I'm wondering about is I was really fascinated by the characters, the, the, uh, the details about the time period and how the tournaments were run and all that kind of stuff. A lot of people over the years have written these sort of one-season books where they, they follow around the tour and, and do a year's worth of reportage and put it between, between two covers. Do you think that there could be a as good a book written in 2022 as this book from 1974? Maybe about a different sport or a different level of sport, but certainly not about tennis. I, the access that she has is tremendous. And based on reading what she said about the book, I don't even think that she like took the whole year off to do it. She was just able to dip in and out and seemingly just spend as much time as she wanted with any player she wanted. I'm sure it was a little harder than that, but just beyond what would be possible today. And I think it was also helped by so much of the activity at the time in the sport happening in the U.S. and among players from countries where English was the was the primary language. I think that really helped her uh, be able to, you know, be quoting endlessly from people who are alive and legendary to this day. Yeah, there were a, a few non, I guess everyone spoke English since, of course, the book was in English and she wasn't translating anything, but there were a few characters from other countries. I'm thinking particularly of Helga Masthoff from Germany, and she did quote the accent as, as writers tend to do, like it was, I'm off to catch the plane. Um, I guess that's more French than German, but I'm not known for my accents. But she, she did that, but that, that, that really stands out. It is mostly Americans. And... She goes to Wimbledon. I think that's the only foreign trip in the book. And it, when she gets to Wimbledon, she's kind of updating us on the season and says that, you know, since we last met these girls, they, a lot of them went and did the European swing. They went to Roland Garros. They played the Italian Open. But it's almost like, like a sidebar. Like, who really cares? It was tough for them. They didn't win as much. Whatever. Now it's time for Wimbledon. Wimbledon is fun. Let's talk about that instead. Um but as as you say, tennis was more U.S.-centered at that time. I mean, do you think the book lost anything because it was so U.S.-centered? No, that's what I mean. I mean, I think if someone tried to do it today, they would. it would be kind of hilarious to try to write about professional tennis while focusing on Americans in the U.S. I mean, I, I do 
want to give her credit for having a lot of content about Australians and Brits. It wasn't just Americans, but just that they were equally or more comfortable uh, speaking in the language the author did and that and that we read today. Um, but you know, she was able to get to a lot of the major events. The Battle of the Sexes itself was in Houston. I mean. I'm sure if someone tried to write a different book about that season, maybe someone did and we don't know and it's in another language and they focused on that European swing, it would focus on different players and maybe feel just as central. But given that we're talking just to name names about, in addition to the subject of today's podcast, Chris Everett, Billie Jean King, Margaret Court, I mean, these are three of, well, you'll tell us soon, but three of a very small number of the best women of all time, all playing near their top level already so i mean that's the timing was really good yes and I, the interesting thing is, is she frames the book with the battle of the sexes so the first i think the first chapter is sort of the run-up to the battle of the sexes match and then the final chapter is the the match itself and i don't i, I don't think that was part of the plan i i, I maybe we'll we'll get her on the podcast and, and confirm this but i i got the sense that she she made the deal to write this book because it was a pivotal time in women's tennis. It was clear to anyone paying attention to tennis that revolutionary stuff was happening in professional women's tennis. But on you know, December 15th, 1972, people weren't, there, there was no battle of the sexes on the horizon. This all came, this all came about pretty quickly. Um, so it, she just kind of stumbled on maybe the biggest match of, I don't know, a hundred years. I don't know how you compare battle of the sexes to anything else. It's, such such a huge event but it, it wasn't in the cards until she was already working on the book which is I mean, pretty remarkable timing we should all be so lucky so she she has great timing and that can sound like faint praise or even an insult that we know about the book because she happened to choose that year i'm sure there was a reason she chose to cover tennis that year it wasn't just a coincidence and i think it's it's to our uh great value and enjoyment today and insight that she did. I mean, a lot of what we understand about these players, a lot of quotes or ideas that you see attributed to them, I, I now recognize from this book. And it they may have said it in other forums, but it, these are, again, a lot of people who are very, not just alive today, but very relevant to the sport today. And you get to see how they thought about this very uh, change-filled time, this time when you know, women were for the first time getting equal prize money at the U.S. Open, the Battle of the Sexes itself being the other big moment uh, for, for women's tennis and women's tennis players showing what they could do uh, on a very big stage that year. And, you know, Billie Jean King is is still a very influential figure, figure in women's sports, one of the most influential. Chris Everett is one of the most prominent commentators on the sport. Uh, Rosie Casals is still involved in the sport. And uh, it's... It's. It makes me think also about what we miss now. I mean, you said, could someone do this today? And no one is doing this to this extent today. If they tried, they just wouldn't get the same level of access. Maybe Netflix will get good visuals for its series on the ATP tour, but I don't think they'll get this level of candor and going out late for dinners and, and drinking. Um, and, you know, so we won't really know those stories unless players choose to tell their, their versions of it years later. Yeah, I, I, one thing I really appreciate about just this book existing is a, a few times she would mention something that, that happened and then say, you know, later Billie Jean said that she wouldn't have done it if she knew. The, the example that comes that I have in mind is Sylvia Hooks, a, a black player at the time. Um, she she said something about, 
about noticing a Confederate flag on center court at one of the events and being really bothered by that, as naturally you would be. And Billie Jean later said that she didn't know it was there. If she had known, she wouldn't have played. And my my first thought was that, like, oh, of course, Billie Jean has had 50 years to think about it. And then sort of my, my common sense kicked in, like, no, but the book was published within, within six months of this event. So, of course, this was Billie Jean's initial reaction. Um, and it, it, it's, it's just good to know, I mean... I'm not trying to fact check everybody and, and, and figure out what their views were at every stage of the last 50 years. It's not that important, but it, it is useful to know that to to know like the evolution in, in what what players were thinking about, what they cared about, what their opinions were about things. Get a sense that Chris Everett, you've mentioned already, she was kind of the same person in 1973 as she was through most of her career. Uh, it, there was the same, immediately the same contrast between who she was personally and what her public image was. To to get that glimpse is is really special and something that that you don't get from a lot of time periods in tennis, just because nobody was there to write the book. Now I know you had on your podcast um, Rowan Ricardo Phillips. Is that right? Yes, Rowan Ricardo. How can I, I? What a great name. Yeah, Rowan, great player too. Yes. Um, and, and that was like watching it from a distance, a very different approach, which I think is more appropriate to uh, today's sport. Obviously, he took a different approach. He wasn't there. He wasn't befriending the players. But I mean, you said you don't think a book like this could be written today because you wouldn't get the access. You know, it seems to me I'm, I'm purposely taking a kind of extreme point of view here, but it seems partly that the players don't have the same personalities or the same contrast in personalities. Like we have, we have Grace Lichtenstein profiling everyone from, you know, Julie Anthony, who's getting a psychology PhD in her spare time to Jeannie Everett, who's 15 in the shadow of her big sister and only kind of playing part-time to these super big stars. And even the stars have big contrasts like Margaret Court and Billie Jean King. Like, so how much how much of the difference between 1973 WTA and 2022, either men or women, I guess, at this point, um, how much is it access and how much is it just the players are all kind of cut more from the same mold these days? I don't think we know because I don't think we really know the players. I, I did a story about something called ATP University years ago uh, where players who reach a certain ranking and might actually start attracting some media attention get trained on, they get trained on a lot of things, including finances. And I think it's it's a good program and something sports should do more of. And one of the sessions is on media training. And I remember one of the players was, uh, you know, expressing his opinion in the session about how, you know, any man in the top thousand, maybe he said, could beat any woman in the world. And I think that's probably not an uncommon view among players. It's not particularly an interesting view or a political view. Um, but he was like coached into how to not say that ever. And then they followed up with me and said, hey, they hadn't even been trained yet. It's great that you got access, but can you not like quote that? Um, so, I've, you know, I've never I've never written that or I think even told the story. I'm not going to say who it was. I'm not even sure I remember who it was. <laughs> um, but, you know, the point is that um, you're kind of taught both explicitly and by the modeling of, of other the, many of the top players to to avoid letting on much about your personality. And I, I can think of some recent examples where, where we either probably should have heard more about something, but didn't until it finally came out or like, um, you know, something shows some level to a player that, that we didn't know about, like 
with Ukraine recently, um, you know, Svitolina taking a stand in terms of saying she won't play a player who's playing under the name and flag of Russia or Belarus, which are the aggressors against Ukraine. Um, I, I knew she was from Ukraine, but I wouldn't have known that she would do that or say that she's going to give all her winnings on the tour at tour events this year uh, to help people in Ukraine or recently retired Stakovsky going to war in U- Ukraine. Uh, Kyrgios and Medvedev recently speaking about kind of their uh, psychological and mental struggles and demons with the sport. Um, I think with Medvedev especially, that kind of came out of nowhere. Ikal Yuzny retired and barely talked about his, what did he get, a PhD? He got some advanced degree yeah, in something. He got a PhD and not specifically didn't, related. didn't one of your colleagues translate it? Yeah, one of my colleagues translated and I wrote about it and it was, an, it was a fine story and I think he gave a quote, but it was like, we, we only did it because that story hadn't been written, at least not in English. And maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe a lot of the most candid things we could learn today about players are not going to grace Lichtenstein, they're going to journalists around the world in uh, speaking in other languages and we could Google translate or maybe someone does the work, but it's just more fractured and so we don't know about it. But anyway, I think there's a lot of glimpses that there's a lot more going on with players. Gael Monfils has given some insights into his personality. I, I just think it's it's not, you know, in this book, she's going out, she's in the locker room when she's the only uh, journalist there or she's you know, out to meals or she's in the hotel or, you know, she's she's in places that maybe very candid and interesting conversations are happening now, but we just don't have uh, journalists to, to record it. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, you thought that if a book like this could be done now, it would be done for a different sport. And it seems like in some ways, 1973 tennis, especially 1973 professional women's tennis, which was still finding its footing as for what it was going to be and how big it could get. Um, it it is a different sport. I mean, it was it was so much smaller scale. Um, the number of players on site at any given tournament was often tiny. I'm not sure whether this was still true in 1973, but in 1971, the first year of the, the full-time Slims tour, the, the tournaments were 16 players. There might be a, a one or two more players in a prelim route or something, but they were 16 players, and then they all played doubles against each other too. So it had to be this very small clubby atmosphere and they were going to places that weren't established tennis clubs. So there weren't like press officers who'd been doing it for 20 years, like you might find at Indian Wells or Cincinnati these days um, to kind of control the flow of information and access to the players. It was a bit of a free for all. And and I'm not sure what the sports are where you'd find that these days, but I mean, it would be a small one. Like you'd get the same feeling from, I don't know, like indoor major league lacrosse, which I think is a thing. I don't know anything about it, but I mean, it's, it's small enough that you might get the same kind of dynamics, but I mean, tennis has come so far since then that the, one of the things you do lose is that the players being willing to share their, their individual characteristics, whether they have them or not. Now, one player who really sticks out in the book as having individual characteristics that differ from the pack is the, the woman we wanted to talk about today, which is Rosie Casals. Um, I, I mentioned in my, my piece that she, she would occasionally have a post-match cigarette. She eventually realized those were unhealthy. So she switched to cigars. So there's stories of, you know, of Grace Lichtenstein riding in a car with, with Rosie while Rosie is puffing away on a cigar the whole way to the hotel or the next stop on the tour. 
um, she she and she, she's setting aside a beer for Margaret Court after the match. Like you hear about that with the men's tour, but you don't from that era. The Aussies were were famously big time drinkers still at that time, uh, but you don't hear about it as much with the women's tour. Um, and both both in terms of personality and in terms of on court technique and style and all that stuff, Rosie really stands out. You can tell. Grace Lichtenstein really liked her because she was so unique. She was so energetic on court and creative on court. And I've brought this up so many times. People are probably already getting getting bored with it, so I apologize. But Carl, you you talked to Rosie for an interview for your podcast, Thirty Love, a few years ago. And the one thing, unfortunately, the only thing that stuck with me is her comment that you asked if there were any contemporary players that reminded her of herself. And she just said no. She didn't even really have more of an answer to share about why she thought so. She just said no. And I kind of have to agree, like, as far as we know what her playing style was like. I mean, she was five foot two. Um, she was a net rusher. She was this extremely creative net net player moving all around the court. Um, there does, isn't anybody who really fits that description. But even if we expand that to sort of the, the off-court uniqueness, does, is there anyone who comes to your mind as... Of Rosie Casals of today? No, <laughs> I, I I thought about it when she said it. I thought about it more when we were preparing and when I when I read your story. And I mean, of course, if you list enough attributes about anyone, it's hard to find anyone else who matches them all. But even if you if you limited it to just a few or the few most salient or unusual ones, it would be difficult. I mean, I, at first I I read some things that suggested, oh well, she was yes, she was five two, but you know, the average player was shorter back then. But I don't think the average player was that much shorter back then. I mean, you may have the stats, but I don't think we're talking like three inches. No, um, I don't think so either. And there were certainly, there were a lot of tall women. Margaret Court was maybe, I'm not sure, 5'10". 5'11", I think. 5'11", okay. So she was tall. Um, a lot of the other top players, especially the sort of, I mean, it's, it's like the tour today. Like, it, it, there might be a couple standouts who are, or... I think Marito Redondo, Marita Redondo was another player who was pretty short. But, yeah, I, I, there were very few players. Billie Jean King thought of herself as short, and she was 5'4 half. So there's a big difference, <laughs> big difference in, in, yeah. in terms of getting the ball over the net with any kind of power and spin between 5'4 and a half and 5'2 and, and a quarter. Rosie would insist, 5'2 and a quarter. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like one of the one of those most common plays to, to counter – Casals was to lob her, which sounds kind of cruel. But uh, if you're a net rusher in 5-2, you have to sort of either just accept that you're going to lose a fair number of points by being lobbed, which can feel kind of embarrassing and like it counts for more than one point loss. Uh, and you're going to have to get really good relative to your height at backing up, getting up in the air, doing something good with the ball when you when you make contact, because you're even though you're making contact, maybe in a, in a tougher part of the racket. So it, it you know, a lot of the discussion of her in, in the Lichtenstein book is like lamenting that, oh, you know, why didn't she win more? And it's kind of amazing what she did win. I know your your number, your 128 ranking is not, you know, giving people points for what they did with their height. But uh, in terms of thinking of what she accomplished in her career and what could have been, I mean, it's hard to imagine much better. I I was looking up before we started recording, who are the best short players in tennis history and you know what are what are some of the current ones and many of the ones cited are a lot taller than her like Simona Halep is five six 
Um, there was a New York Times article a few years ago written from the U.S. Open about how shorter players on tour uh, deal with being shorter, and Vanya King 5-4 was one of the was one of the main examples. And a lot of the shorter players were basically like, well, I'm quick and I move around a lot. And I think Casals was, but she was so aggressive. And it was at a time where not everyone served and volleyed nearly as much as she did. So I, I think it's it's hard to imagine a combination like that today. And in fact, maybe eight years, 10 years after the book came out, she was interviewed about how even then she lamented there weren't really players like her. I just think there really haven't been, at least in, in this half century. And that was the same time frame where the servant volley started disappearing. And of course, everyone who was a, a, a full-time servant volleyer immediately lamented the loss of the servant volley, even when it was still hanging on. But yeah, she was she was unique. And you have to go back really far to find players who were 5'2 or shorter who had any kind of success. I, I'm not sure if this is the full list, but the only other ones I know of are... Um, Silly Ausum, who's a German player who won the French Open at Wimbledon, I think, in 1931. And then Anita Lozana, the Chilean player who won the U.S. National Championships in 1937. Uh, that's it. They were, I think they were both an inch or two shorter. I think Lozana was just exactly five feet tall. But, I mean, basically World War II and later, you had to be a lot taller. And in women's tennis... The, the generation coming up in the U.S., um, even a little bit before World War II, they were Amazons. They were referred to as the Amazons. Um, Pauline Betts and Louise Bruff and Margaret Osborne DuPont, they were all they were all tall. They were all um, pretty sizable women compared to the, the generation that came before. Uh, and Rosie was bucking the trend even then. I mean, I'm sure when she was going to play tournaments in San Francisco, growing up still in the amateur era, she was... It isn't like there were a whole bunch of... of successful amateur players who were 5'2", 5'3". It's like I said, Billie Jean was two and a half inches taller and she was considered short as well. She thought of herself as as short, but like I say, there's a big gap there. Since I've mentioned the amateur era here, this is kind of an inside baseball thing, but I want to know what your thoughts are on this, Carl. One of the first places I look to just to start researching a player is their biography on the, the Tennis Hall of Fame website. And some of them are great. Some of them are pretty short and perfunctory, but it's it's something. gives you an idea. There's usually some good pictures about the player. And Rosie, of course, is a Hall of Famer. In addition to her singles career, which we've been talking about, she was a tremendous doubles player, one of the greatest of all time. Because if you if you lob Rosie Casals in doubles, there's somebody back there to, to pick her up. So that helps. And the Hall of Fame website lists her career singles record as 595 wins and 325 losses, which, I mean, sounds good to me. It's a it, It's not a very best of all time career but that's a pretty nice career for a singles player who's even better in doubles if you go to tennis abstract you get a singles one loss record of 808 against 417 losses so there's a difference of roughly 300 matches tennis abstract has 200 more wins against 100 more losses i'm not exactly sure what the discrepancy is although i'm pretty sure the hall of fame website doesn't count uh, the amateur era so that's part of it but that's not the whole thing uh, that doesn't account for the whole difference. So there's a whole bunch of pro-era matches that Tennis Abstract has that the Hall of Fame doesn't. So both of those numbers, out of context, they both sound like someone who was awfully good and had a long career. So I guess my question is, does it matter? Should anybody care that there are these two giant numbers that are also substantially different from each other that somehow are supposed to reflect the same career? I care. Uh, I think... It matters for understanding her and her career 
on its own and also in context, being able to compare to to other players. Um, I think it also just speaks to like our investment in the sport and its history that we want to to count these things correctly. I mean, in 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 other sports, they're not only uh, baseball is such an extreme example. It's not fair, but let's take baseball. There's no ambiguity about who won games in history. There's a ton of box score stats we have going way back. And then people are trying to reconstruct the stats we don't have and have largely done that for as far back as they can uh, using other sources. And here we are in tennis still off by, you know, 200 wins and 100 losses on a Hall of Fame player. And the, you know, her career started in 1961. We're not talking about a pre-World War One career or something. So... I guess it's sort of symbolic of how much more work there is to be done just to agree on on tennis's basic history of who won and who lost which matches that we should count toward their record. Uh, and then, yeah, for her, I think it's it's important and interesting. I mean, it, she played a ton of matches, and that's part of what made her special, both in individual seasons and in her career, if you count singles and doubles. We're not even talking about the quality of doubles stats and records. Uh, and if we're off by, you know, I guess that would be about 30, your, your numbers are 30 something percent higher. Um, that's, that's a big chunk that we're, we're maybe shortchanging her. Yeah. I, I'm not sure what frustrates me more. The fact that there are open era tournaments that are somehow missing from the official record, which I mean, that's, that's the thing that really surprises me. Like you would think given how much the WTA publicizes its past, all, I mean, all of which I'm, I'm glad they do. They should. I hope they continue to do more of it. But given how much they do, you would think they would make an effort to get everything right back and everything complete back to the beginning of at least the Virginia Slims tour. And at, I would think back to the beginning of the open era, whereas for the from the late 60s and early 70s, really all they have is the slams. I'm not sure they even have all these main Virginia Slims tournaments, I have a, a pretty complete record, but I probably don't have every single match. Um, and then the other thing that that blows me away is this, it's an unspoken belief, but because the open era is such an important point in tennis history, it's like everyone has accepted that 1968 stats are super interesting and relevant and, and we ought to count them all. 1967 stats, eh, well, we can live without those. Like we know who won the slams. That's fine. And part of what prompted the whole project that came before this project for me was thinking, okay, well, the two of the biggest names in the early open era are Billie Jean King and Margaret Court. I mean, Rosie's not one of the top two, but she's definitely in the top five of players like that who bridge the two eras. And we know so much about them, but if you want basic stats about who they were playing, how much they played, how much they won in 1967 or 1965 or 1963 then you you can't find it you can really really dig maybe it's online I've found match results for both of those women that weren't in any kind of records I was aware of before just by you know plowing through the Los Angeles Times or newspapers like that um, it's not it's not really hard work but somebody's got to do it and there's got to be some effort to to concentrate it in one place and just it just seems like only logical to me that if you care about 1968 you care about 1967 i guess eventually like that logic has to fall apart you have to stop somewhere but the place to stop is not 1968 like as you said earlier carl these 
these women are still alive. They're still extremely relevant. The era is extraordinarily relevant since, I mean, this, this is when so many big steps forward for women in sports happened. Um, and they're kind of, kind of being ignored. So just the fact that Rosie played so much, like you said, uh, that just the sheer numbers alone, even if you don't know the details, the sheer numbers matter. One of the other things I want to talk about kind of that is a decent segue from that is both Rosie and Billie Jean King played tons of matches. Just, I mean, they were playing week in, week out, singles and doubles virtually every week. They were winning all the time, so there weren't a lot of first-round losses. They were playing five singles matches often every week. And part of the reason for that, especially in 1971 and the years immediately after that, is Billie Jean especially knew the tour needed her. Uh, I mean, she was the biggest name. The, the tour was in no way guaranteed to succeed. The, I mean, sponsors were often one-offs, and they really wanted Billie Jean King at their event. Uh, that's a big contrast to where we're at now. I mean, we just found out in the last couple of days that Ashley Barty is skipping Indian Wells in Miami. She says she's injured. Maybe she's injured. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. But she hasn't played very much in the last few years. Again, good reasons. But we've got a very good, very compelling number one player in tennis who doesn't go to most of the tournaments. And for years before that, we had Serena Williams, who, again, outstanding, all-time great quality number one player who took a lot of weeks off. And seems like that's not so great for the sport. And it's a really striking contrast between the amount they play and the amount people like Billie Jean and Rosie played in the early 70s. I mean, how much do you think that hurts the sport? I mean, do, you, do you think that... The, the women's tennis is mature enough now that it doesn't really matter that much or how much is being left on the table without having Ashley Barty there at Indian Wells in Miami? Well, hopefully your next project will be to, to finally solve all these, uh, these problems and, and answer all these questions that are now more in the realm of anecdotal evidence. Like we should actually know by now, to some extent, what is the impact when Serena misses a tournament or when, when Barty misses a tournament? Like what, what can we learn from the information that's out there? Maybe the answer is we, we don't get any good information from tournaments. So we need to um, give Grace Lichtenstein a, a freelance contract to go do some reporting for us. But my hunch is that it doesn't matter that much uh, for Barty in the US, whereas with you know Serena missing, those two big uh, premier events in the U.S. that would probably that that's probably a bigger impact, but you know to some extent I assume that Billie Jean King and Rosie Casals and their you know their group their cohort that that was creating this new sport would have preferred it the way it is now and we're fighting toward what it is now which is that. Barty can earn enough in one tournament that she doesn't really need to play again this year. She might want to play for points and for more money and for the love of the game and for other things, but she doesn't have to. And I, you know, it's not as good for fans, perhaps, but it's at least in the short term. But in terms of it being, you know, a sport that is properly is earning enough money and then giving enough of it to the players, uh, it seems like a pretty positive development. And, you know, I hope this isn't a matter of continued uh, shortfalls in, in the numbers, but it looks like after that season, that was just an you know incredible volume of matches still early in that in that pro women's tennis history, you know, as the the tour matured as it kind of won its battle and merged with with the existing tennis establishment, 
the number of matches Casals played went down significantly pretty quickly. 1974 was the first year of world team tennis. Ah, uh, which is not counted, of course, because those matches don't don't really count. But they, I mean, the world, does that completely make up for the difference? I'm not looking at a stat sheet right now, but I know at least one year, Rosie Casals played 44 matches in world team tennis. And that, I don't mean singles plus doubles plus mix. I mean 44 ties. It was like, it was like the basketball season in the middle of the summer. And they were like each, in, they didn't do like three match series in a city. They were moving around at, for every match. Pretty close. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was every single Yeah, match. so that could be even more exhausting in a way than 44 matches over 10 tournaments or something. Yeah. All right, so that's that's fair. Although, you know, again, like that was, that was a financial opportunity and a thing that they were building that was like, you know, startup people work... 20 hours, God, I hope they don't work 20 hours a day, but they say they do, um, uh, you know, while they're in startup mode and the goal is to, in 10 years, be comfortable and work not at all or normal hours. So I, I think there's like an element of, it's just not, like if Serena Williams goes back 50 years and Billie Jean King moves up 50 years, you know, maybe you would see the similar level of uh, commitment and investment in, in tour, um, you know, commensurate with that with that time. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yes, I'd, I'd be curious exactly what Billie Jean or Rosie would say about, I, I, I guess they've probably been asked at least about Serena. Um, and I, I know they have said things along the lines of, of the, they're happy to see the opportunities they've, they've created that have, I mean, fully come to fruition. I don't think they, they ever dreamed of just how, how established, how, um, how financially rewarding the women's tour would eventually become. Um, on that same note of how hard they were working, I've got a great trivia question. You might remember this from, from part of the book, but I'm, I'm guessing very few of our listeners would know this. And I didn't know this until I, I read the book. Um, how long was it after the Battle of the Sexes match until Billie Jean King played her next tournament match? So my guess is she shut it down for the season. It was after the U.S. Open, and it was, it was like late September. So... Uh, maybe she skipped Australia too, so six months? Less than 24 hours. Oh, that was, yeah, yes, yes. It was like nearby, right? There was a tournament in Houston. She had committed to play it that week. I think Battle of the Sexes was on Thursday night. So she played her first two matches on Monday uh, and cruised through those pretty easily. And then, of course, there was a complete media circus and warm-ups and all that stuff Tuesday and Wednesday and the day of the match. Friday, she played a quarterfinal against um, Robin Tenney, who was a qualifier. And then on Saturday, she lost in the semifinals to our good friend Rosie Casals. Who was a commentator on the match a few days before. Exactly. Um, I, and I didn't know that before reading this book. And I, I, I guess I haven't... No, but it's in the movie, right? Is it in the movie that she was playing immediately after? I knew that. Oh, I knew no, that Rosie no. was a commentator. I didn't know there was another tournament going <laughs> yeah. on in Houston at the time. Yeah, I and now that you mentioned in the book, it mentions like the other players who had been kind of grumbling about her commitment to the tour, um, welcome her back, Billie Jean King back uh, after the match, and I, I'm just surprised because you know much of the lead up to that match, which I hadn't fully appreciated uh, until reading the book, was was just how mentally and physically she wasn't feeling good at all. So. Uh, kind of remarkable that she decided to go right back into things after because she had been withdrawing from tournaments leading up to the battle. Yeah, she missed a couple tournaments before the U.S. Open. Uh, it's actually the first chapter of Julie Heldman's book is she lost in the third or fourth round of the U.S. Open to Julie Heldman, 
uh, it was a retirement and I mean, she was physically struggling. Heldman came back and was playing a good match and was, and the, the sort of gossipy part of the story is that Julie Heldman was, was insisting on limiting changeovers to the, the, the specific rule book allotted time. And finally, finally she looked up on one changeover to the chair umpire and said, is, is our minute up yet? And Billie Jean said, if you want it that bad, you can have it. And she just walked off the court. So I think it was four, one in the third when, when Billie Jean retired. Um, uh, and then, yeah, I think she skipped another couple of tournaments after that. I'm not 100% sure about that. But then, yeah, it was just two weeks or three weeks after that Heldman match that the, the Houston tournament and the Battle of the Sexes happened. And not only this, this, this is a, another striking thing to me about that tournament. At these Virginia Slims events, there was a third place match on finals day. And I mentioned in my piece that Rosie Casals was the absolute queen of the third place matches. She played way more of them than anyone else. She won way more of them than anyone else. She won them at a higher percentage than most other players. Uh, but Rosie was in the final that week. So it was Billie Jean King against, I can't remember who, maybe it was Nancy Ritchie in the third place match. So Monday, first round and second round. Thursday, Battle of the Sexes. Friday, quarterfinal. Saturday, semifinal loss. And then Sunday, she played a third place match and that ended up getting rained out so they didn't finish it. But the fact that Billie Jean King showed up to play a third place match three days after Battle of the Sexes, I mean, that's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, it, it's the sort of thing that you just can't, I can't even fathom the equivalent happening today. I mean, I can't even think of what the equivalent would be, but it's just, it, it's almost impossible to believe. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's interesting how the structure of your list is that um, so many of the players closer to 128 than to one end up being defined by the players closer to one. So we end up talking about them too. So it makes sense to talk a lot about Billie Jean King. They were doubles partners a lot, uh, by a lot. I mean, they won 50 something titles together, I think. And they were, they were friends and they had different views on how to sort of push the sport and push feminism, but, but basically work together on that. Um, but they, they were all just so closely linked at the time generally. I mean, it was it was such a communal effort. And so King was doing it partly for that. And also it's very clear from the book that she just really loved tennis, really loved winning, and really, you know, saw things for, for women and women's liberation and for the sport from the perspective of we need to sort of win by winning. We need to make money and we need to build a business. And, you know, she wasn't so much like going to argue on theoretical grounds. She was going to do it on the court. And, you know, I think it's also kind of let's get in while while it's good. Let's get in while we've got uh, while we're playing near our best and there there's money to be won. Yeah. And that was the tennis boom. Like I, it's tough to, to tease apart cause and effect here. Um, but that was a, a, a big time in tennis, even if you take out all of the birth of the WTA stuff, there was an, an, an enormous amount of change happening on the men's side as well with the birth of the ATP and, and competing tours. And just, you mentioned the, the ATP boycott of, of Wimbledon, which I think was 72 or 73, I think 73. Um, it was it was all happening right then, and in, in in the U.S. especially, that was when I mean hundreds of thousands of people were buying tennis rackets and, and learning tennis for the first time. That continued throughout the decade. So, in a way, the timing was good. But like I say, it's tough to tease apart the cause and effect. And one thing that it, it 
I've read about this in different contexts so many times, but it strikes me every time is the the pre-open era professionals, um, the early open era women's tour, the nature of the tour was so different. Like now we have a pretty clear idea of what the tennis tour is. Like every week, all these elite players go to an established venue, a, a sizable tennis club with these certain facilities and uh, amenities and all this stuff. Even even at challengers, like they're often going to, to to big clubs that have hosted tournaments for decades. There are exceptions when you get down to the challenger level, but at tour level, like it, it's it's pretty established what, everything that everything the players are encountering. When you look at what the what the women's tour was doing, and to some extent the men's tour as well, they were going to places that didn't have established tennis scenes. They were taking a temporary court and laying it down in an arena. Um, not a tennis venue at all. They were trying to sell thousands of tickets a day through, I mean, they'd be like a Billy Joel concert on Saturday night and then the tennis starts on Sunday or Monday. So it's a, you go to the, the arena ticket office and buy your tickets for the Virginia Slims event. Uh, and it, in one way, that's a huge negative because the amenities were horrible. I mean, the, the, the linesmen were of incredibly varied skill and experience. Like, the experience for the players was not that great in many ways. The one positive that strikes me is that it meant that any market was a potential market for tennis. Like if some, if some sponsor said, you know, we'd like you to come to Akron and, you know, put on your show in Akron, Ohio, then they had to come up with, you know, 25 grand or whatever it was, but they could, you know, all pile in their cars and bring the truck with the temporary court in it and go play in Akron. And maybe now there's enough of a club everywhere that at least there can be a challenger in Akron and there's no nothing really standing in the way. But it seems like a major difference. And I mean, I, I wonder what you think about that. Like, because the tours have become so stultified, it could cost you know, seven, eight figures minimum to buy a license for a tour level event. Like, it, it seems tough to expand the appeal of tennis beyond the places where tennis already has has the capacity to host a tour level event. I mean, is... Is there room for something like more exhibitions or, or something to bring back that sense of wherever the fans are, we will bring the tennis and we will bring the stars? I, my hunch is there is. And right now, I think tennis, like other sports, is still struggling uh, to just get back most of its its status pre-pandemic and, and probably more conservative, if anything. But in the period in 2020 when the tours were shut down, we saw a little bit of this, not not always with stars, but with kind of quasi-events, certainly not official tour events, popping up uh, and trying some new things and, you know, f- using the latest technology to, to kind of create a very fast and dirt, quick and dirty streaming product uh, for people who weren't there. So uh, it seems like that kind of experimentation must have taught some people some things and some some of the events must have been successful enough to try to adapt them in the future. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe that's one good thing that came out of all the awfulness that caused it. My first thought about this was it, it helped when the tour wasn't as long or when the tour season wasn't as long or the, the tour stops weren't as established um, because it left room for experimentation. And that is in a way, very similar to what you just said. Like as as soon as there there were empty months with tennis players who wanted to play and places that had some sponsorship money to put on tennis events, they figured out a way to do it. But when 
when the ATP and WTA seasons are healthy, there's not really space to do it. I mean, the Labor Cup can fight their way in and there will be some some big budget exhibitions, maybe a few charity events in December, the extent of the off season. But there's not much room for anything else. And I guess that's that's what I wonder is how, it, it, I think you're right. There is the creativity. There's obviously enough talent all over the world. I just wonder if there's enough room on the calendar to let that kind of stuff happen. Yeah, I mean, there's we still have a little bit of World Team Tennis. The Labor Cup just pushed other stuff aside. I know that's a little unusual for who's involved with it. But I, I think there is space. I mean, we'll see what happens with events in China long term. Uh, there are events in, in Russia. I mean, there, there are things that are unexpected that have happened quite a bit in the last couple of years that that might cause some temporary and more permanent perturbations to the tour schedule. I make the point in my article about Rosie that it seems to me that as soon as a player gets dubbed as like a super talented shot maker, then there's a whole personality that goes with that. They're flighty, they're underachievers, they underperform, their potential is so much greater. And that was definitely part of the narrative about Rosie. I mean, Billie Jean King said in an autobiography in the 1970s, basically came out and said Rosie Casals is lazy. She doesn't work hard enough off the court. She could be so much better. Uh, It seems to me like you hear, you've always heard the same same type of stuff about John McEnroe. Some of the same uh, terms get thrown around about somebody like Gail Malfi's. As soon as you get to be known as a shot maker, you're automatically all those other things. And... I mentioned in the piece, the one that really strikes me is the example of McEnroe, who has this amazing career. I mean, set all kinds of records, won seven slams and singles, and had a great doubles career as well. But still, we think of him as an underachiever. Um, am I right? Are there are there exceptions you can think of to that or thoughts about why this is? Or am I totally off base? What do you think? Well, I've been told recently that I should disagree with you because it's more interesting. So here's a shot at it. I think there's a potential reversal in the causation here. I guess we could actually test this by seeing like when was the first time that Rosie or John were, were called shot makers in, in at least in print. But my guess is that what shot maker implies is you if if you watch this player's highlights next to the highlights of you know the five players ranked in front of them and five players ranked behind them if if there is such a group, they would look the best. By far, you know, they would look better than their ranking, which is right in the middle. That basically their capability of making great shots outstrips their actual results, which tends to be tends to correspond with some of the other adjectives you gave flightiness. You know, a lot of the criticism of Casals and and other so-called shot makers is shot selection. Okay, you can make great shots. Are you choosing to go for the right shot at the right time? The, The best time to go for a shot that can make a highlight reel is probably when you're behind in a point anyway, and it's about as good a way to try to win it as any other option you've got. Um, if you go for it at other times, including when you're ahead in the point and could go for something much higher percentage, that's going to end up uh, diminishing your your outcomes in terms of one, wins and losses. So I I I suspect that you're you're labeled with shot maker because of pre-existing perceptions about your personality and game style. That's interesting. I'll buy that. I'm. It, it probably can't be generalized to everybody, but it would be interesting to track more closely what, as you started out by saying, what people said about someone like Rosie Casals and when. Because I'm sure there are players, and maybe tracking the other players the same way, is I'm sure there are other players who 
had similar talents that they flashed as teenagers and then they got to be really good and we no longer really talked about them and maybe Federer fits in this category I mean you can I can certainly think of some of Federer's flashier moments early in his career and you can imagine coming to the same conclusion about him and if he had never cracked the top three maybe that would be the story about Federer this beautiful game and amazing shot making ability but he just can't put it all together it's crazy to think about that in as a possible outcome for Roger Federer but I don't know. I, I can see that narrative evolving in that way. That's possible. Yeah. In fact, I think that was how people talked about him. And if you look at like highlights, not that I would ever watch Federer highlights, come on. But if I had, I think a lot of the shots of his that are most famous are ones where he was probably going to lose the point anyway. And I mean, th- those maybe you could say make for the most spectacular ones because it's so unexpected. But I think that's where he's gone for a lot of his most showboaty shots is like, yeah, that act, the tweener might have been his best chance of winning the point, or at least it didn't matter much because he had such a small chance. Um, you've got his like bounce smash from b- behind the baseline against Roddick. He was in a pretty bad position there, so why not? Um, and from reading some of the anecdotes with Casals, it sounds like maybe she went for stuff when she didn't need to and when a match was close and it really mattered. Well, and if you are one of the most prominent net rushers on tour, I mean, she wasn't because Billie Jean King was, but when you are one of the more prominent net rushers on tour, you're going to have a lot of opportunities like that, right? Like you, you talked about people lobbing her all the time, even just fighting off passing shots. If, if you're the one who's more likely to make a behind-the-back, half-volley drop shot winner, then we've talked about this before in many other contexts. You don't have to hit very many before that becomes your reputation. And it sounds like she she hit more than her share. So you can you can see how she got there. Where whereas Billie Jean King might have been more likely to be in position or Margaret Court with her remarkably long arm, she didn't need to make it look like a difficult shot. Whereas for Rosie it was acrobatics every time. So you can see how the, the label came about. Yeah, and my hunch is that it was even more the case for her than for contemporary players. Like it took more to earn that that title because now uh Cuevas right like he's he's hit some spectacular shots but every one of his shots is so well documented and stitched together very quickly into a highlight reel and becomes like a meme on Twitter and it's hard to find video of any of these um rumored great shots of Casals it's hard to find video of her period at least for like a full match um so if she got that reputation nonetheless that makes me think there was even more signal going into it yeah, here's an outrageous and frustrating fact for you. Whatever number you take for her career number of matches, if we go with the tennis abstract total, it's over 1,200 matches. I think it's true to say that full match video exists for zero of them. Exactly zero. And, and there's some slam finals in there. There's two slam finals, yeah. And that we have highlights. I think there's a nine-minute clip from one of the slam finals, maybe even a little bit more. That uh, interestingly, the one, the longest stretch I know about, I I bought a video of an of a men's slam final from maybe the same event, and tacked on the end of that DVD was like ten or fifteen minutes from from Rosie's slam final. I mean, it's fun to watch. It's it's better to see ten or fifteen minutes than none. But but zero, twelve hundred matches, full video for zero. It's it's. It's frustrating to be a match charter with a historical focus. Um, okay, a little bit of a left turn, but since we've been talking a little bit about Battle of the Sexes, we'll probably have occasion to talk about Battle of the Sexes again in the future with other players in the Tennis 128. But 
one question I have, I'd like to research this. I don't know how much of an answer we'll get, but Margaret Court played Bobby Riggs a few months before. It was the Mother's Day Massacre. It was like 6-1-6-1 or something. And then the Battle of the Sexes, Billie Jean King comes out 4-4-3 four, four, and three, or something like that. So pretty big difference. I mean, you can write some of it off to Bobby Riggs being a weirdo and taking all kinds of unknown vitamins and maybe poisoning himself. People like to say Margaret Court was a choker. Um, there are explanations for this, but I don't. none of them satisfy me. They might satisfy like 20% of the difference in the performance of Margaret Court and Billie Jean King. Um, do you have any theories that might close the gap between this 20% I'm willing to accept and the actual enormous difference? I do. Okay, first, first I want to question the premise and I don't I don't know the exact answer, but let's say it was the same player both times. Let's say Court got the rematch. And I think Court would have gotten a rematch, or at least the book says so, if Bobby Riggs had beaten Billie Jean King. Um, what is the typical spread and sort of the the ninety-fifth percentile um, spread between rematches between two players given that much time? My guess is it's just bigger than our intuition says. That like there there's just especially because, you know, a six one, six two or whatever it was in the first match doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, he dominated every game. The games could have been close and he just, you know, won all the all the game points. Um, so that's that's one thing is just you would expect some natural variation. The second thing is mostly a joke, but not really. I think given his age, best of five probably favored his women opponents over him. Uh, just the giant age gap. I, I mean, Billie Jean King won the first two sets, so it, it can't only be that, although he might have been training differently and conserving energy differently. Uh, then there's the theory that Don Venata presented an ESPN article years ago, and he came on my podcast to talk about, which is that maybe the match was fixed and that Bobby Riggs threw it, which even if that were true, doesn't tell you how he would have performed if he hadn't been, been throwing it. Um, I'm also a little curious about the, have you charted that match or do you know if, if someone has charted that match? No, I I believe video is out there, but I don't have it and no one's charted it. I mean, it doesn't really fit into, it's not like one of Billie Jean King's or, or Bobby Riggs' official matches anyway, but it I think it would be interesting because on the one hand, in the book and in other descriptions I've read, it was so one-sided. On the other hand, the score was kind of close, and when you hear the sort of point-by-point -point descriptions, it sounds like a lot of the games were close, it came down to like one break in each set, so it wasn't that much of a route. So anyway, I don't think if all of those will get you all the way from 20% to 100%, but those are some of the things that I think might have played a role. I'll go to 40%. I, one thing that Grace Lichtenstein talks about in the book that it might get me a little further is it seems like Margaret Court didn't take it that seriously. For her, it was kind of a lark, kind of an exhibition match. I mean, Bobby Riggs was a joke at that point in his life. I mean, he was a great player in his peak, and he, he played an important role in professional tennis. But, I mean, by then, he was a gambling addict and quite old and a joke. So you can see why Margaret Court wouldn't have taken it that seriously. And we know from extensive documentary evidence how seriously Billie Jean King took it. So maybe if you if you swap those two, like like you suggest, if the order had been different, maybe, uh, maybe things would have worked out differently. Uh, it seems like so many of the explanations just hinge on on who Margaret Court and Billie Jean King were, which, I, like I say, I'm willing to accept some of that. I just don't think that explains the whole story. So maybe 
maybe I'll dig into that more when I, I get to Margaret Court, somewhere between number one and number 114. Uh, okay, I'm calling a little bit of an audible here. If you have a little more time, Carl, you had said before we started recording, you might have a few questions for me. So if you if we want to take a few minutes, if you have any questions about the tennis 128 so far, I would I would love to hear them and try to answer them. Oh, okay, great. So some of these I think you you discussed already in your podcast with Joe Pisansky, but I'm not sure I know the current answer. Is pending other than current players who might do things between now and when you publish their results, is the is everyone fixed or maybe that's a big enough pending that the answer is no? They're pretty much fixed. Um, I I was I'll say I was watching both Australian Open finals closely because they had potential effects on the list. Um, obviously, Nadal and Djokovic could could really mix things up if only against each other over the over the course of the rest of the year. Um, I I think for the for other players, uh, my answer is similar to what Joe said. Joe was very strict about it. He said once he said once he made the list for his baseball 100, he was done, and that seems like a very healthy way to go about it, especially for baseball because baseball is so much more based on career value than peak value. Uh, but if you know, I'm thinking about Ashley Barty for instance, and Ashley Barty wins every match all year, I'm going to have to keep reevaluating that. I can't just say. I made this list six months ago. <laughs> Therefore, Ashley Barty is going to be where she belongs six months ago. That doesn't really seem right. But the bigger danger for me that I have already encountered writing some of these is I didn't know a lot about a lot of these players when I started. Um, if, if you are a cynic, you might say I don't know a lot about them now. But learning about them for the first time, like I, I made these ratings, or I made the, the ranking list based purely on, on an algorithm, which I think is pretty good and based on good data, but it's purely on an algorithm. So if I'm reading about somebody and thinking, wow, this player is so much better than I thought, or I had any idea, I am going to be tempted to bump them up 10 spots or 20 spots, especially when we're in the lower section like we are right now. But Joe made this point as well. Like it, it, Once you do that, what happens to those players you're leapfrogging? What if you get to them and you want them to leapfrog as well? Uh, you can't move anybody down because you've already published most of them. So I'm trying really hard to stick with the list as I made it, but um, subject to to occasional small tweaks. So I'm guessing you you haven't been researching anyone and thought, oh, they this is inflated. Oh, they were you know <laughs> they were playing players who weren't really trying or whatever. Well, there's a. It, it, there's a few, including one of the most recent drafts I just finished, so someone will see in the next couple of weeks, that, like again, for the male players before the Open era started, I didn't know a ton about a lot of them outside of the big names. So I just wrote about Ted Schroeder this past week. I didn't know much about him or Adrian Quist, an, an Aussie player from the 30s and 40s. Didn't know much about him. So for the most part, when I, given that I come in with no expectations, I am pleasantly surprised. I'm like, wow, I'd never heard of Adrian Quist, but he played this super dramatic Davis Cup. He won three slams against good competition. He was part of one of the greatest doubles teams of all time. I mean, wow. But there is the possibility you get to somebody and it's like, okay, why is he number 10 something on my list and he never won a slam? And I don't quite get it. So it does create a new problem. And with the player I'm thinking of, who I'm not going to give away, but you might recognize when we get there, part of the project is figuring it out. I mean, if, if my algorithm says this guy is number one Oh something, then there must be a good reason. And maybe, maybe I don't realize how good his competition was, or I don't realize just how good 
his best streak was or his best season was. Um, so in a way that helps to have that kind of difference because it gives me a place to start researching someone where I otherwise might have been at a bit of a loss. And hopefully you don't realize, ah, oh, there's a typo in my ELO script. Yeah, there was a lot of testing, but, uh, the, well, I guess, I guess you know this because I sent you two drafts of the list to, to kind of um, to do a, a smell test on. And it wasn't there wasn't very much time between the first and the second, and they were quite a bit different because I did discover a, a glitch in my ELO script. And I think it's all sorted out now, but, but yeah, you, you never know. I mean, if, if you really hate some of my rankings, I'm, I'm going to blame it on that. <laughs> ELO did it. Uh, let me just ask a couple more. So I think the Australian Open so far has played into your hands just in that, you know, there wasn't number 129 winning it or something. But is there any risk that number 129 can, can do so well that, um, it can, you know, that person like should have been in this group that already has been named or, or is there enough? What is the gap at this at this level of the list? Is it like pretty tightly bunched or is there some room between 128 and 115? It's super tightly bunched. Um, there are some examples of players who aren't because of some uh, some personal changes I've made. Let's say, like there are some players who my my algorithm seemed too low on, some my algorithm seemed too high on, and I've made some adjustments. So there are some some players who, if you look purely at the algorithm, there's a pretty big gap between them. But I think my judgment moved them closer together. But yeah, there's. I think by the end of the year. I will need to adjust the list. And if you think about, especially on the on the men's side, in Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev, if you think about where they'll be in five years, like unless one of them, or unless they get injured, you pretty much have to figure they're going to make it onto this list, right? I mean, if they keep playing the way they are, maybe not Tsitsipas, but Medvedev and Zverev, if they keep playing like this for five more years, they're on the list. If they have mediocre years, I don't think they get on the list by the end of this year. But it, the way I'm thinking about it is, if you're if if you're going to get on my list as number one fourteen, we're kind of in a race. <laughs> like you have to you have to prove it that you're one fourteen by the time I publish number one fourteen. Once I publish number one fourteen, that spot is gone forever. So, I would say in one sense, yes, the list will change by the end of the year. I'm gonna think you know Medvedev or Zverev or Sitsipas or Team coming back. I don't know, fill in the gap. One of those people should have been on the list, but they didn't make it in time because the, the people who were on the cusp are already, they're, they're already running out of time. And there aren't that many people on the cusp. I mean, I, I've named some of the names who, who might be there on the men's side now. But if you think about the women's game, I, I guess I'm starting to give things away, but there are a lot of players who might make the list in five years. But of all the great players in the women's game right now, most of them will need a few years to get there. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see Arena Sabalenka in the single digits, but she's she's not there yet and a lot of the other stars are more years further away so i mean obviously people like serena and venus were going to see them on the list uh, but there aren't there's not a lot of people in the middle like in this point in, in in the stage where they've already started to put together an all-time great resume but uh, they only need a couple more years to really seal the deal yeah and i, I realize now that i asked the question that even if someone earns 113 before you've published it putting them there means bumping someone who was going to rank 113 or better it doesn't mean bumping 128 because they're already there so that would be a tough one yeah i i did start the list with a couple people that could be bumped but but yeah that that is the problem and it, it's it's fine if, if if i write an article about sits in january of 2023 then that's fine 
we're all adults here. We can we can recognize lists change. It's a living list. Okay, last thing. So, you know, we, we spent a fair chunk of this podcast talking about Billie Jean King, a bit on Margaret Court and Chris Everett. Are you finding as you're researching these and inevitably those players, you know, are the reason that some of the people you've written about are number 115 and not number 15 or whatever, that you're already amassing material for, for later on? Do you have documents for all 128 and you're just filling them with, with stuff you can't wait to get to? Or are you starting fresh when you get to them? I... I made a lot of notes like that reading reading Grace Lichtenstein's book. And the one thing I find that I want the most from my research is the sort of color that her book is so great for. Like, um, I don't want to say whether this person is on the list or not, but you might guess. She has a couple of comments about Virginia Wade late in the book that are just fantastic. Like, they're just brilliant little observations. And there's probably no more than a page in the whole book about Virginia Wade. But... I mean, if I am writing about Virginia Wade, I, I'm so happy that I know that. And Martina Navratilova makes some cameos in this book. I mean, she was not a major figure in 1973. It was her first full season in the U.S., I think. So it's she pops up a couple places winning matches. And we learn that she was one of the fast food junkies on tour. And she gained all this weight in her first trip to the U.S. But... I mean, where else are you going to find that? I mean, people weren't writing newspaper profiles about Martina Navratilova before she started winning, I don't think. So this book is a pretty rare place for it. So I'm constantly doing that. I mean, and, and the biggest fear I had going into this project was that some of these names I didn't know very well, like the Ted Schroeder is a good example, is was I going to find enough material? I mean, I know I can look at the New York Times and read about how he won his major finals, but am I going to get much about the personality? And there's still some players in the low 100s and 90s and 80s who I'm not quite sure where I'm going to find that stuff. Like it always turns up, but but I mean, the short answer to your question is yes, I'm absolutely making tons of notes and, and tons of lists. I'm not actually as worried about people like Billie Jean and Margaret Court because I'm not at all worried about finding enough information about them. It's just, I mean, especially someone like Billie Jean, it's the world is overflowing with commentary and and stories about Billie Jean King, but about Virginia Wade, there's still plenty, but someone like Virginia Wade or Ann Jones, then like people haven't talked about her as much. You're not going to search her name in the, the New York Times time machine and see like just thousands of results pop up. And some of, their, some of them are often just going to be a paragraph. So details about players like that are worth their weight in gold. So definitely picking those up as I go. All right. Thank you, Jeff, for appearing on your podcast. Um, I, since you since you did come back to the book, uh, next year is going to be the 50th anniversary of this season. I hope somebody reissues this book. I think it would do well. So many of the people in it are still alive and can talk about it. That would be great. Uh, and, you know, to that point, I think it aged pretty well. Uh, I, I mean, curious what, what you think you can say after. But, you know, we read Gordon Forbes' Handful of Summers, which came out a few years later believe it or not. And while Lichtenstein spends more time talking about women's bodies and their attractiveness than I wanted or than she would today, I'm sure it, you know, on topics of like women's rights on black players, um, on sort of the, the finance finances of the tour, I, I thought it, it held up quite well and was quite relevant. I mean, Confederate flags being, um, still hoisted today in this country, uh, makes that part relevant. Uh, and one thing it touched on, and I thought of when we were talking about, you know, how many matches players played and their commitment to the tour, was 
they were so financially constrained, some of the players, that they were staying with hosts and there were stories of hosts coming on to them. And here they are like stuck in people's strangers' homes in these in these towns they don't know. And that's something they have to fight off and, and face as like potentially assault in somebody else's home. I mean, that, that was just a different level of um, of resources and, and, and what they were fighting to to improve and get out of. Last thought on the stats thing, you mentioned the Hall of Fame. That's what you're comparing your stats to. You, with help, have gone back year by year and filled in the gaps. And that's the great thing about doing it is you, you do one year and you're done. You've gotten everything available and you move on. There's there's finite history to fill in. So I, I really hope maybe around some of the anniversaries, around some of these events, that some of the uh, tennis institutions with more resources commit to doing it. Yes, I will say it, it's it's not as as clean as that. Like it's, especially when you get back into the amateur era, you have to decide where to draw the line between what is the equivalent of a tour level event, and there there will be examples where newspapers didn't cover every match because they missed the deadline or misprints or whatever. Uh, so so unfortunately, I I won't say that even a good year like 1966 or something um, we can be complete on, but. As for the rest, yeah, I emphatically agree. It seems like you could push things back to, I don't know, the beginning of Billie Jean's career or the beginning of Margaret Court's career. Or at one point, my plan was to go back to when the game restarted after World War II, basically. That seems like a very natural stopping point where you wouldn't be complete, but you'd be very close and you'd have something really meaningful that goes back before the open era. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll second that. So... On that note, we can we can wrap things up. For those of you who, who thought we were talking too fast, every time I mention the author's name, the book we've been talking about is called A Long Way Baby by Grace Lichtenstein. It is long out of print, but it's easy to find in a, in a used copy. It's even on Internet Archive. You can check it out for an hour at a time and read it in a kind of awkward web viewer, but it's free. I was able to check it out for two weeks. You were? Yeah. Do you have an account? Maybe it's because I have an account. Anyway, yeah, I didn't have no, to recheck it out. It, Okay, I and I guess I don't quite understand what the rules are because there was a big controversy with Internet Archive at, around the beginning of the pandemic because they made everything unlimited and free and that violated probably the spirit and the letter of agreements they had with publishers or wherever they were getting the, the libraries they were getting the material from. I thought they tightened that back up again, but if you had it for, have it for two weeks and I was checking it out for an hour at a time, maybe... Maybe there are some books they have that deal on, or maybe they have multiple copies. I'm... Or country-specific. Oh, there we go. That that could be. Yeah, that's possible. I'm sure this is the most fascinating stuff for our listeners. But but yeah, you can you can check it out for free for either a, an hour or two weeks, depending on, I don't know, the roll of the die. And I, I really recommend it. I, I Carl gave it an 8 or an 8.5. I would go even higher. I agree. It, it aged really well. And I'm probably a little biased because I've, I've become so interested in this era that I, I have kind of a head start in knowing about the players and, and the milieu. But I think even without that, I mean, she came at this as a tennis novice and lets the reader be something of a tennis novice as well and still find it very interesting. It's more about the sociological side of the game than, than the nuts and bolts of the tactics and that kind of thing. So I, I never found it boring. It's lots of fascinating stuff, especially if you already have some interest in the players, which presumably you do if you're listening to Minute 75 for a podcast. So hope you check out the book. Hope you are keeping up with the Tennis 128. And as we've seen, number 115, Rosie Casals. Thanks for joining me, Carl, as always. 
My pleasure, Jeff. And thanks everyone for listening. We will see you next time.